Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. This is one part of a two-part Miranda warning series on the case of Harvey Weinstein, who on February 24th, 2020 was found guilty of two felony sex crimes for which he was sentenced to 23 years in prison. Harvey Weinstein was a high-profile film producer who had the ability to make or break an actress's career. The allegations against Mr. Weinstein alleged conduct which took place at various times over 30 years and served as a flashpoint for igniting the Me Too movement. We'll be talking with defense attorneys of Harvey Weinstein, as well as a plaintiff's attorney for plaintiffs in civil lawsuits against Harvey Weinstein on these episodes of Miranda Warnings. We're here today with Elizabeth Fagan, founding partner of Fagan Scott, specializing in class action lawsuits. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. It is really great to have you. Beth has been on the front lines of legal battles involving sexual assault and discrimination, including having represented female students abused by University of Southern California uh, Health Center gynecologist and currently involved in a class action against the NCAA uh, because of abuse by coaches throughout the country. She also serves as lead counsel for several plaintiffs in a civil lawsuit against Harvey Weinstein, who was recently convicted of rape and sexual assault in February of 2020. Uh, Beth, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the, the, the case against Harvey Weinstein. Uh, there's a number of plaintiffs, and I know that uh, you represent s- some of them. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, your clients and where that case is right now. We filed a class action in late 2017 on behalf of nine women um, who were abused by Harvey Weinstein at various times over the course of the last 20 to 30 years. Um, Each of them allege a similar pattern of behavior by by Harvey, including everything from um, uh, masturbation to rape. Because their pattern really mimicked each other, because their allegations were so closely aligned and they had the same type of abuse, the same type of pattern um, of people that introduced them to Harvey, that put them in the room with Harvey, we felt it was important to allow them to band together and bring a class action. Currently, uh, we are proceeding in discovery. Um, We don't yet have a trial date, but we expect depending on where the criminal cases stand, that we could potentially have a trial date in 2021. Let me ask you about this, the whole class action, because this is not something that I think is typical uh, that you'd expect to see in a class action. Um, How many potential uh, members of the class are there in this case? You said you represent nine, but how many members of the class would there be? So as of today, the court has dismissed the companies and people that were involved prior to 2008. So if we're looking at a potential class of people that were abused from 2008 forward, we're aware of approximately 75 women where we could identify the approximate date that they were abused, 
the type of abuse that they suffered, um, and the location where it occurred. There may be more than that, but but those through our investigation are the ones that we've been able to identify. Now, let me ask you this. Um, has this is, you said you filed it as a class action, but has it been certified by the court as a class action? It has not been certified by the court as a class action. Um, and right now we actually are debating whether we will file a motion for class certification. But what we do know is that we've been contacted by many women who found comfort in the fact that we had a class action on file, that don't want to come forward, that never wanted to share their names, but that were relieved that Harvey had finally been really called to task for this pattern of behavior over years. Um, So as of right now, we have four plaintiffs that still have live claims um, in the lawsuits. And uh, it is debatable whether we will file a motion for class certification or whether we will proceed to trial on their individual claims. I see. So if it's if you, if you decide not to go as a class action, then you can you'll just proceed with the clients that you actually represent. That's right. And then um, some of the other uh, plaintiffs obviously have other counsel, and they would proceed uh, as well. That's right. And they've and women who've had um, separate and independent counsel have always continued to pursue their individual cases and aren't precluded from doing so by the fact that we have a class action on file. Now, I know that uh, that Harvey Weinstein has filed for bankruptcy in March of 2020. Um, and so how would that impact, uh, you know, any successful judgments that you may get? You said you're probably not going to go to trial at least till next year. How would that impact uh you know, judgments for these aggrieved plaintiffs. So his companies, the Weinstein Company and its affiliates, are the companies that filed for bankruptcy. He has not yet filed personally. Um, But the fact that his companies have filed for bankruptcy has a significant impact on whether there will be anything any proceeds available um, or really anything recoverable. And it is part of what we're in discussions with our clients about right now is, you know, you, we may go to trial and get a piece of paper that shows a very large number, but it'll be completely uncollectible. Um, And really the reasons are several fold for that one that is companies are in bankruptcy. There's literally nothing left. All the assets have been sold off and been used to pay off secured creditors. Um, Two, obviously Harvey has been convicted um, and is facing a lengthy prison sentence in New York. And there are still pending charges in California where he faces a potential life sentence. And so his counsel has made very clear publicly and um, directly that his focus and his money is focused on his criminal defense at this point. Um, And three, you know, he still has... um, private loans that are ahead of, of, you know, any, any of our clients, as well as proceedings involving his um, ex-wives where they have been able to freeze assets that, you know, might otherwise be collectible. So it's a very, very tough road to hoe to think about how we would actually recover if we were to get a judgment. And the lawsuit that you have is is against him individually, or does it include any of his companies? So originally it did include his companies. It also included the board of directors of his companies since we, and his brother, since we felt that they were complicit. Um, the judge did dismiss uh, those companies, as well as I think five other judges in the Southern District um, also dismissed the companies and his brother from um, other individual lawsuits. 
our clients still have the right to appeal at some point. Um, and so that, that still is a risk to those companies and um, the board members, which, you know, has allowed us to engage in some discussions about whether those rights are worth anything. I, I know uh, it was reported that there was, you know, some discussions regarding a potential resolution that included some insurance monies. Uh, would that be insurance that came from uh, him personally, or would that also be related to the companies that he was working with? It's all related to the companies. So the companies, you know, would purchase um, director and officer liability insurance over the years that was intended to cover, obviously, board member liability. Um, And so to the extent that a victim's fund would be created, it would be because that money would be diverted basically from covering um, the board members themselves to, to creating a victim's fund. Right. And, you know, there was some, you know, the judge mentioned at least in the in the in the case that was reported that, you know, he found it, you know, uh, untenable for him that this was coming from insurance and not from him directly. But as you've indicated, uh, there's there may not be anything there from him directly. Yeah, in our investigation, we have not identified, you know, any hidden assets that that he may have that he's sitting on that would would benefit the women. Um, And I think what's unusual, unusual about this case is that in almost every case that we do of this size, where you're involving boards of directors and companies, insurance is always a primary um, contributor towards victims fund. It's just that it's usually not transparent because there's usually not bankruptcy proceedings. But here, because of the bankruptcy, you know, everything that goes in and out um, of, uh, where there's an asset that belongs to the company, it's all transparent. And so um, I'm not aware really of any settlement in a class action where insurance proceeds are not part of the package. And so the fact that the judge um, was uncomfortable with that was unusual, but I think it's unusual because of the state of, of the litigation. Now, you, you mentioned, obviously, there was a, a, a criminal case in, in New York where he was uh, found guilty of, of, of two, uh, convicted of two felonies. Um, there is a pending case in, in Los Angeles uh, with similar charges. What's the impact of the criminal conviction on your civil lawsuit? So as of right now, there's no impact on the New York criminal conviction on our lawsuit, other than the fact that obviously a potential jury pool is likely to be quite aware of, of Mr. Weinstein and, and um, the conduct in which he's engaged. But the pending charges in Los Angeles certainly have the potential to delay um, the civil lawsuit and the potential to um, postpone discovery in our case. And at the very least, he's entitled to, to take the Fifth Amendment when answering questions that we may pose. Um, ultimately, that could help us at trial because we could use his Fifth Amendment rights um, to get an adverse inference in the civil context. Um, but in the short term, I see it really as posing delay to our ability to get to a jury trial. So is there, if there's a, if there's a criminal conviction uh, with respect to facts that are relevant to your case, uh, that would obviously carry over on the civil side. Right, those facts would be taken. Potentially. 
had we, if we were to proceed as a class action, I think we would likely be able to get that type of evidence, you know, admissible in our case. If the if our district court allows us to proceed individually and severs our individual cases for purposes of trial, it's probably more or less likely that we would be allowed to introduce evidence of his criminal conviction, you know, at an individual trial. Um, but that's certainly one of the reasons why we were pursuing this case as a class action because there's such a pattern and such a practice of of conduct that we really felt it was important to be able to really package all of the evidence, you know, from from the dozens of women that have been abused and be able to use it um, on behalf of any one individual were we to go to trial. Yeah, you know, the class action side of it, I, I understand that there's, as you said, there's about 75 uh, uh, potential members. Obviously, that it goes back, well, it can go, go back to at least 2008 uh, for the class action purposes, but obviously it goes back decades even before that. Um, and so there is a pattern. But the, the question I have is, how do you uh, put all of the, the, the potential plaintiffs in, this, in the same pool where some have, uh, you know, actually made accusations of, of rape and some have been, uh, he's been convicted of rape and uh, others have been of, you know, less, a lesser degree. Um, how would it be determined, uh, you know, the degree to which uh, individuals should be compensated when you have all 75 kind of lumped in together? Absolutely. So one of the interesting and unique things about the federal rules of civil procedure is that it provides for certification of what I would call a liability class. So the liability class would be really allowing us to go to trial on the pattern and practice of conduct. But we would not request that the court certify a damages class. And what that allows the court to do then is once you've kind of proven this pattern and practice, it allows the court to to hear each individual woman's claims on damages. So each individual woman is going to have suffered a different amount of trauma. Obviously, the physical conduct is going to be slightly different. And so therefore, the damage to her and the evidence that she may present as to, you know, whether she saw a psychiatrist or psychologist or has continuing, you know, physical injury, um, that would all come in individually. But what it, what it, what it prevents or what it, um, how it supports the victims is that it doesn't require each of them to get up and relive in an adversarial context the pattern and practice of the of the original physical act itself. And so the idea was to have women who are at a point in their lives where they have the strength to do it, get up and prove the pattern and practice, and then provide a confidential, you know, more safe process for individual women to come in to prove up their damages on a single individual basis. So in other words, out of, uh, out of the 75 or so that would be part of the class, not all would have to testify. That's exactly right. They might have to testify in the context of working with a special master or if the judge retained jurisdiction, uh, working with the judge on their damages or you know providing evidence on that. But it wouldn't require every woman to get up in court, which a lot of them you know won't ever do and won't ever bring individual lawsuits because of their fear and, and frankly, just because of their trauma. And then once, once the case was established uh, and the damages were either established or agreed to, then you could have the judge 
in a more private setting, make a determination as to what was each individual would be entitled to. That's exactly right. And that's the model that we used in USC, for example. Um, you know, the, there the judge did recognize that um, because USC didn't have a policy to prevent or um, allowed this physician in the student health center to continue to abuse women over the course of, you know, 30 years, that each individual woman didn't need to come in and show, you know, what USC should have or shouldn't have done in order to stop this predator. Um, and then each individual woman came in through a special master to prove up her individual damages. How many plaintiffs did you have in the USC case? Um, there's approximately 17,000. Well, no, not plaintiffs. I'm sorry. There we had, in terms of plaintiffs, so I think about 10 plaintiffs, but about 17,000 women who were subjected to abuse. Um, and we had a very high submission rate there in this kind of confidence process, um, more than 10,000 women have submitted claims. I see. And, and is, that, is the distribution of those um, uh, monies uh, still going on in that case? It is. It is. So final approval of the settlement was already um, provided, and um, the special master kind of interviews and investigative process is occurring right now, and distributions are supposed to be made by uh, February of 2021. Now, tell us a little bit about the class action case you have against the NCAA uh, because of uh, the pattern of abuse by coaches. And in that case, I take it that you're not, this is not against one coach in particular, but uh, multiple coaches? That's right. So the case was brought to us by several women who actually were abused by a single track coach um, over the course of years. But what it prompted us to do was to start investigating, you know, how, how this continues to happen, whether you're talking about Dr. Nasser at Michigan State, whether you're talking about, you know, the Ohio State issues or Penn State um, issues going back to Sandusky, how, how does this continue to happen? And so we started looking at it from the top down and from a policy perspective. And if you look there, the NCAA doesn't have what should be um, basically consensus best practice practices and rules in place to prevent sexual contact between um, whether whether you want to call it consensual or non-consensual sexual contact should be prohibited between coaches and student athletes because of the disparity in power um, and so as we started to look at it we thought you know this isn't a school by school problem this is a top-down NCAA lack of lack of policy and rulemaking problem um, and no one school is going to implement a practice or a policy um, that requires it to disclose if it has, you know, a, a problem with coaches because it's going to affect, you know, revenues, it's going to affect scholarships, it's going to affect um, alumni uh, contributions. And so the only way to really force change here is to go after the policymaker, which is the NCAA. So that's, that's our, our goal here is to affect change in rules. And if we can affect changes in rules, then what we will find is schools are going to have to to make change at the at the individual level. So you're saying un currently under NCAA guidelines, there's no prohibition on sexual relations between a coach and uh, one of their student athletes. That's exactly right. And so what you find is um, student athletes can't complain because if a coach holds your playing time in his hands or her hands, or if the coach holds your scholarship renewal in his or her hands, um, the last thing you're going to do is go around your coach to complain um, and, and lose your right to be on a team. Now, has this case, uh, this been certified as a class action? 
No, we recently, we filed several months ago, so we're just in the initial stages of the case. And where is that pending? <clears throat> That's pending in the Northern District of California. I see. And wh- when do you expect you'll get a decision on, on whether it'll be a class action? Uh, I would expect by the end of next year, late 2021. I see. And assuming that it, if it is, what would you estimate to be the, the, the total number of members of that class? That's a good question. Um, you know, what we found was we took a similar tact when suing the NCAA for their lack of rules, for its lack of rules um, in the concussion context. There, that class was also on behalf of st- all current and former student athletes. And the NCAA ended up agreeing to a settlement class that was approximately 4 million people, which was all current and former living student athletes. Frankly, we would, you know, expect the same here in the context of an injunctive relief type class or equitable relief type class. Um, But we would, you know, obviously have the same issue that we have in any of these classes, which is that individual people would still have to step up and identify, you know, their abuser and the place of abuse and, and any potential damages they suffered. So from that context, we don't have, you know, specific numbers. Right. And once, uh, presumably, once it gets certified, then you would be able to, uh, you know, broaden the net uh, to try to get more people that have been uh, impacted by this uh, to be involved in the lawsuit. That's exactly right. And we would expect that there would be a centralized repository at the NCAA tracking some of these issues. Um, Now, whether it's informal tracking or formal tracking remains to be seen. Um, But certainly we know at some point the NCAA had a committee that was supposed to be addressing sexual abuse on campuses. Um, I think they opened up a Pandora's box and they ended up closing down the committee. So we'll, we'll see why, why that was. Um, but I think a lot of this will be tracked. It's just not yet public. I see. Well, uh, Elizabeth Fagan, uh, I want to thank you for, for being with us on Miranda Warnings and, and talking about some of these uh, very important uh, lawsuits that you have uh, pending. Uh, these are obviously very uh, serious uh, topics. We have something of a lighthearted feature on Miranda Warnings called Music Book or Movie where you can share with us something that's helping get you through quarantine these days, something that you would like to share with our listeners that is of interest to you. Well, I will say that with five kids at home, my uh, entertainment tends to be much more on the um, little kid side than it does, uh, you know, on the serious side. So we are working our way right now through the Harry Potter movies with my 10-year-olds. <laughs> oh, good for you. Harry Potter, that'll, that'll keep you going. Uh, there you go. Very good. Well, Beth Fagan, thank you very much for being with us on uh, Miranda Warnings. Uh, good luck to you. And thank uh, you. we'll be watching for your, your cases. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast, available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.